Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Gaia Harrington for, I, I believe this is number three, right? It is. Yeah. Glad to have you back. And I've been on the edge of my seat. I'm actually literally at the edge of my seat right now because last, when last we spoke, you said you were going to come out with a book and at last it's out. And that's what prompted this conversation. And I, I, I believe that we're going to talk about that most of the time. Also, when we last spoke, I believe you were technically then still at KPMG, but leaving to work at Schneider Electric. And those who work in sustainability know the name Schneider Electric is one of the companies that like stands out. And probably not all the listeners have read Limits to Growth. So I hope that they turn off right now and go and read it and then come back. <laughs> but maybe we can talk, uh, give a bit of a primer about that. But do you mind if we start by how's... How is the leaving and getting started at Schneider Electric? What's your new role? How do you like it? What's it like there? Exactly. Yeah, it's very uh, timely because uh, we had our CEO was in Time Magazine um, last week, and um, and the title, if I remember correctly, was how um, the CEO made his company one the most sustainable corporation in the world. Um, and I, we were voted most sustainable corporation in the world last year. And I think ultimately it's just because uh, Snyder wants to be part of the energy transition. We need several transitions, complete transformations in society. And many of them are actually social. But of course, there are also environmental ones. And we typically put energy in there, even though, of course, there are, there are many social aspects to it as well, like the it needs to be a just transition, right? It needs to be inclusive, all those things. Um, but that's that's what we are primarily working on. That said, um, they realize that uh, it is not just about energy and it intersects with a lot of things, and a lot of other uh, environmental things like water, um, agriculture, ultimately. Uh, and uh, like I said, also the social aspects. So because I talk like this, Right. They were like, hey, do you want to uh, research that more? So I'm in their very small research sustainability institute, uh, which uh, does research that does not have to be commercially viable. So you can see how when they offered me that uh, I was happy at KPMG. But when they offered me to do that, like, hey, do you want to do whatever you're doing now? Uh, you know, and just follow your curiosity. That was hard to resist. Could, how many other companies could do what they're doing? I, I mean, I think a lot of play. Could everyone? Well, ma <laughs> many more than uh, than are, are doing that right now. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's the future, right? It. I mean, I. It, the, the, I think we all, all, almost everybody feels it, and the responses to it are different. But almost everybody feels like this. Things are going to get shaken up. Where it's not, things are going to have to change. So business as usual is not going to continue. And then what comes next? And like I said, um, people differ in their opinions about that. But, um, you know, whatever worked for you in the past as a company will not necessarily uh, keep you in business in the 21st century. Is, is what you do just uh, research or is it all in publishing or is it also, I mean, I would think, are you helping other companies to make what Schneider's doing Normal. Yeah. I, Are you evangelizing? I'm not sure if that's the right term. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think Snyder would like that term um, because we're our business. Um, but I do. And it, it is we are asking our suppliers 
for example, um, you know, to to set climate goals, and uh, we celebrate those going above it. Um, and so there too, we want to expand that. So I I do think that's part of it. Um, we are very much on also espousing values, which I think is important. I think we all have values and we're driven by them. And by not talking about it, um, you you're not always helping the the discussion and and that's the transformation that we need. I think. If a listener's hearing you and thinking, I want my company to be like that, could they contact you to find out how they could make their company more like that? Um, I mean, they, they could, but the truth is that there are already great books out there about corporate responsibility and how to start with that. And of course, it is a very unique journey for every company, right? So what I did um, and what we, I should say, are doing at Snyder is not, you know, that worked for us. Uh, but I, I think it very much depends on the company that you're working in. But the short answer is, uh, yes, you can do that. And uh, really, the, the template would be to find other people within your company, uh, get together in a small team and, and identify those things that you think um, are in, in mo- show the most opportunity for change. Right. Because there's a lot of opportunity. It's an imperative. Like I said, I, I, it's you, if you want to stay in business, you have to change. But there's also so much opportunity in there to to really add value to society and improve your worker well-being, um, all while still making a profit. They can still use you and Schneider as a role model, though, and so that it will look different in each case, but it can be done. And the end result is joyful, productive, enjoyable. Uh, mm. Yeah. Yeah. And in that sense, I think that general template. Yeah. Snyder is an example. There are other companies, of course, that do that, too. And, and they will tell you the same thing. It's it's a triple win. Right. Because you you have happier customers, uh, but you also have happier workers. So companies like, uh, let's say, Unilever or Patagonia is a good example. Right. Um, and then many more startups uh, that, you know, we are Unilever and Snyder Electric, we're m- major multinationals, but there are also many startups that are very disruptive in that sense. I have to jump ahead of ourselves a bit here because I remember in your book you mentioned, oh, there's these, the usuals, like the ones you mentioned in Interface and a couple others. But the one that I'd heard about this one before, but the nurses in, I don't know how to say it because it's Dutch, but <laughs> yeah. uh, that one was. Well, I, let's get to that later, because I want to um, first, before talking about your book, I think it'll be useful to, if you, a, a primer on limits to growth, and I have a feeling we, we may talk about it more than, I, y- your understanding of limits to growth and my understanding of limits to growth are very similar, and I, I rarely find people who get it the way that I do, and uh, how would you character, I mean, how did you come across limits to growth in the first place, and what does it mean to you, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, of course. I came across limits to growth just simply in, in my master's studies in sustainability at Harvard uh, many years ago. And this was about uh, the first systems model of the world. So it was a new kind of modeling. My first master's was in econometrics. So I'm also very uh, familiar with that kind of modeling. And it's definitely useful in some cases, but not in all. And when you are dealing with systems, so things where a lot of different kind of variables interact with one another all the time. You don't have a lot of the constancy that's 
often implicitly assumed in econometric models. And so another nice thing about systems modeling is that you are better able to include variables that are hard to quantify. So you can model social, behavioral, uh, physical, and technological variables. And that's actually very key because they all do interact in the real world. So if you want to model something as complex as our world or society, that might be a better uh, modeling tool. And so they created the first one at MIT 50 years ago, and they ran different scenarios with it. And what I did then is uh, last year and two years before that, um, I did a data comparison. So I took observed data, empirical data, and I compared that with the scenarios. And what I found there was that right now, we're still most closely aligned to the business as usual scenario. That one ends in a societal collapse. And the 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 collapse is is in that scenario is setting in about a decade from now. So understandably that got a lot of attention. That's how I got to be asked to write this book, which I did. Um, but I also really hammer uh, what you alluded to uh, about the opportunity in there to still change our trajectory because uh, that was also, I think, one of the key mis misunderstandings of the original limits to growth, that it was a prediction of doom. But it wasn't a prediction because that's that's not what systems uh, modeling is about. It's more understanding the dynamics by creating different scenarios. And just because we align most closely with that scenario now doesn't mean that we have to keep doing that. We can make a deliberate change to align ourselves with a different model, which was also in there, by the way, uh, that was the stabilized world one. And in that scenario, humanity is assumed to make a very deliberate uh, priority change. So instead of pursuing growth, growth in GDP, growth in profits, they directly invest in well-being within ecological boundaries. And that actually brings a lot of stability uh, to, uh, to the world. Uh, broadly speaking. And that is also still possible. That is also not another very common misunderstanding, anti-growth. It just means that our ultimate goal that we set for society is no longer growth, which is, if you think about it, fairly unambitious <laughs> as an ultimate goal, right? There's nothing wrong with growth um, in and of itself, but uh, growth at all costs doesn't make a whole lot of sense, I don't think. Is it fair to say, here's the way I think about it, that about systems dynamics and what they did in the original limits to growth and the 30-year update, which is the one that I read first, and that they were looking for patterns to see how the system worked, not exact answers. To me, one of the biggest things, uh, if, if I could change any one thing about their books, it would be to put on all the graphs, a watermark in the background saying, not a prediction. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. Because like among the patterns that I picked up were if we have more resources, that doesn't really change the, like I think a lot of people think, a lot of people feared we might run out of fossil fuels. If we have more fossil fuels, it makes the, it doesn't change the dynamics. It, it steepens the collapse. It, 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 we grow longer and then collapse faster and deeper. That's one pattern of many. I guess... Um, if we had infinite supplies, it might be different, but 
you know, as long as they're finite, other patterns are that, um, I mean, there's various patterns that you pick up. And when you see these patterns, then a lot of behaviors that in a non-system, in a linear, it's something where all these things didn't interact. Like uh, the number of people on the planet interacts with the amount of resources, which interacts with the amount of non-renewable resources and the renewable resources and so forth. And when they're connected, if you change one, you change the others and how they connect is not so obvious. Yeah. And if, and if I may, um, resources is only one thing that is finite, right? So when you say, well, it would be another thing if we had infinite resources, actually, um, our, the planet's ability to clean up the pollution that comes with our industrial output is still also uh, a finite capacity. And that's actually what you see. So uh, the dynamic that you described, that's exactly right. It's also uh, one of the key dynamics that the Limits to Growth uh, book um, already talked about. And what the authors did, they wrote two follow-up books. And what they did in the last book was they, they, they took that criticism, because you're right, that was a very, very prevalent one. And uh, they said, okay, well, we're just now going to double the amount of assumed resources in the rest of these scenarios. And guess what happened? Exactly like you said, uh, business as usual was able to continue for longer, but that only made the collapse steeper. Uh, but now not, no longer as a result from resource scarcity, but of pollution. So that was actually also the scenario that aligned most closely with empirical data in my study. And if you think about pollution, right, that very much includes carbon pollution, greenhouse gases. So basically what I took from that, that is my interpretation, is that we're, basically, we're at the moment most closely aligned to the climate change scenario leading to ecosystem collapse. And, you know, and when my research went viral, I was almost, I was a bit surprised by it because I'm like, we knew this already, right? It's not like my research is the first to reveal that. We've been getting, getting these warnings from the scientific community for many years already. So uh, it really shouldn't be that surprising. Yeah, Phil, we could talk a lot about the, and the criticisms of limits to growth. I haven't come across any that really understand limits to growth. They, they criticize, it's invariably a straw man or they didn't understand it. Mm. And, it feels like Isaac Newton came up with a theory of gravity and people are saying, look, but you're not predicting where Jupiter is going to be tomorrow. And <laughs> it's uh, really it, useful, you know, F equals GMM over R squared, you know, someday Einstein would adjust it so we can get the perihelion of Mercury, but to criticize, like to understand the patterns of how something works is really useful. And to say that, to, to criticize like, we didn't know the exact inputs, and so the outputs aren't exactly what we'd expect. Doesn't change the patterns, and I don't feel like people get that. Ah, uh, who said this? It's a very, um, it, it's it's a very often repeated statement. It's hard to get a man to understand something if his job depends on him not understanding it, right? I, I think there's some there's there was probably some motivated reasoning in there. Our entire economic structure and then all our institutions or societal institutions around us are very much structured around the ultimate pursuit of growth right now. So that's, if you start to question that, there's some, 
I would almost say existential fear, maybe sometimes, but that could spur. And I think that was at least part of it. Certainly, you can have some um, criticism on the model, right? No model is perfect. So there's there's certainly a possibility for some uh, genuine criticism, as always. Uh, but uh, as you said, some of the criticism was very clearly just also based on things that were not true. And uh, nevertheless, they were very good in discrediting the libus to growth in the public debate. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I could really go on about that. I, was it also for you, uh, did it give you, like it did for me, just a, a really, not, I can't say simple because it's very complex or somewhat complex, but a, an understanding of how things interacted that I hadn't gotten before. And once it, once I saw how it played out in all the different models and I had to spend some time looking at them and studying them and really reading, like, how does it work that the population of fish, how, I mean, how does that change their renewability versus, you know, they could collapse too. I, just as one little example of how these very, like the variables of how our values show up in how our populations and worlds, uh, um, how things grow and, 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 and shrink. I wouldn't have expected that would be possible, but once I saw it, I was like, this really makes sense. Did you also have, I mean, I, I would never have thought of it once presented to me. I can't see how we could not use that as a major tool for understanding our world. Yeah, I think so too. I, I agree. I, I think that's, I've seen that a lot more with people once they are exposed to systems thinking, they're like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. And I think it makes sense. And that's also why I liked uh, writing this book, even though it's always, you know, so much more work than you think. Everybody who's ever written a book knows that. But uh, I could go way more into things that I, I just wasn't able to touch upon in uh, an academic journal, right? And, for example, the criticism is one. I, I was, you've probably read that by now. I, I was a bit more, in, in the journal article, you have to just list the arguments and here I could go a little bit more in like um, in the realm of okay so that was just untrue you know I could be a little bit more uh, personal about that uh, but I also was able to draw more on the the knowledge of indigenous communities for example because they um, they don't use systems modeling but they they just understand it right because um, as human beings like other uh, animals We've, for the longest time, we've grown up within these systems and the idea that there wasn't such a thing as um, infinite resources and infinite uh, growth, uh, that was just inherent because of course it isn't. You're, you're so embedded in, the, in, in nature, right? So um, I think that's also why a lot of people, when they, are, when they see this, they're like, Oh, that makes total sense. And I think it makes sense because it's it's somewhere inside of you. You already had that knowledge. Do you ever, with this infinite growth stuff, do you ever read Julian Simon or Alex Epstein, uh, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels or The Ultimate Resource? Um, I, I think I, Simon, I think I, uh, I referenced a couple of times in my book. Um, but I have not uh, read the, the 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 latest the, the one that you mentioned the uh, Epstein the one. Alex Epstein's book yeah I mean they really I I think they really in their hearts believe that there's infinite energy and I don't mean they they're clear not to mean 
um, there's an infinite amount of energy. Like if just that human beings will always mm-hmm. solve whatever problem comes and more human beings will always mean more solutions. And yes. Oh, I do think, yeah. I also think there are people who are genuinely convinced of that. And I addressed that in my book. So uh, I think uh, we're, we should be careful to not conflate things. I do think that humans have an enormous amount of innovation. Uh, it is absolutely true that our ancestors could not have predicted this. They would, what we have done with, with our imagination and our innovative capabilities is beyond our ancestors' wildest dreams, right? So that is absolutely true. Uh, our innovation is not infinite, though. Uh, it needs. It takes time to develop. Anyone who is an actual researcher or innovator knows this, and uh, it takes. Uh, and it takes a lot of uh, people who are who have the so to say surplus energy to work on those things, and then they are still always working in a finite system. So although our innovative capabilities might be given enough time, mind you, uh, might be infinite, all the other stuff they have to work with is not. And I would also very much say, and that's another thing that I can go, uh, that I was able to go into way more in this book than, again, in the journal article, um, inequalities. So even though, yes, we have an enormous amount of innovative capabilities, um, that is grossly underutilized today, which is a shame because we need it for the sustainability transformation. We actually need to deploy it way more because it's very much capped right now by all the the social and economic inequalities that we're forcing on global society. If if these innovative capabilities are stored in the minds of uh, poor people or women and or black and brown people, um, a lot of times they're they're just uh, barely utilized or not at all. So, I mean, yes, I agree. But if you really cared about this uh, boundless innovative capabilities, you would do way more to actually um, deploy it. You had a phrase in the book. I, did you come up with it? A rising tide can drown us all. It, I, mm. did, did you come up with that? Because I hadn't heard it before and, it, and it, it can. I mean, it's an interesting take on, I mean, in leadership, there's symbols and images and beliefs are really important mm. far beyond what most people think. And in a rising tide lifts all boats is really easy for, okay, you think that and you're done. Therefore growth is good. Yeah. So a rising tide can drown us all. Is that yours or did you come, is that from someone else? Cause it was the first I heard it. Um, I think, it, I, I think it's mine. I think, I think I came up with it. Um, I did no Google search though. So I don't know if anybody else uh, thought of it first, which is quite likely, um, but I did come up with it myself. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it applies here in a lot of places. Yes, right. Because uh, this was about income inequality, but it's also very pertinent to climate change, of course, unfortunately. And how about, I, I was also recently reading uh, Bill Gates' book on climate. And when I was reading your stuff, I was, I was trying to think of, he strongly believes in techno- technological solutions mm-hmm. that to me look like they mimic business as usual too. Mm-hmm. And to some extent could contribute to uh, technological, uh, what, what's, a te- what's the name for it? Um, uh, CT? Yes. The uh, comprehensive technology scenario. Comprehensive technology. Yeah. I just think of a CT now. Yeah. Uh, and I think he thinks that, but I don't think he's got all the components of it, like the changing values, for example. So I'm trying to think of if someone truly believes that 
um, growth is, is the way out or technology is the answer. How do we convey to, to me, Bill Gates is very influential. President Biden is very influential. Movie producers who predict about, you know, who, who I mean, I'm thinking about influential people who create the shared stories of our culture, religious leaders. I mean, Putin, the CEO of Exxon, is that something you think about is how to not just put the ideas out, but reach the most influential people? Mm. Yeah. So that's why I published my book, Open Access. That's the only reason I, I wrote it. Um, there were several publishers that were like, hey, do you uh, know your research on viral? Do you want to publish with us? And to be quite frank with you, I was like, mm, sounds like a lot of effort to preach to the choir. Because, um, you know, that's often what happens. If you make a sustainability book and it's a, it's a $75, only people who, like you already buy it. So that's why I made it open access and it's been shared quite a bit. Um, it's, it's a, I think ultimately the, there's power in, in coming together as a group to exert um, this kind of influence that we need to do as consumers, as workers, um, I think that any, as they're human beings, so as any human being, just like you and I, uh, we're highly susceptible to motivated reasoning. And I do notice that um, in general, uh, white, heterosexual, affluent men tend to uh, believe in in technology that will save us and that really if there was any problem we needed to solve it would be population growth it's a very commonly heard one too and um there is absolutely some truth uh parts of their uh, arguments are valid they're also leaving out a couple of things and i think that's might be because if the problem really is not, uh, not enough technological innovation and uh, population growth, there's very little that you personally have to change. It is, um, you can just say, I will deliver the more technical growth, so that's good. And then uh, the population, I mean, you, you, it's, they don't do this. Uh, well, a, a small minority of them do. Most people don't do this, but it is very tempting to then point at African nations and say, look at those growth, very thin population. Uh, you really locking yourself there in a poverty trap and so that is it's a very unfair way of looking at it because ultimately a lot of the solutions lie in things like redistribution of wealth very deliberately reducing inequalities taxing the rich way better array more um, but also better in the terms that they can't evade it and empowering women because the birth rate automatically almost falls when women have access to education and equal access to leadership decisions and that sort of thing. There's no need to uh, bring that down by any force. Um, but that would mean for some of these people to give something up. And um, I'm not saying they're not willing. I'm just saying it's not typically maybe where, where people's minds go first. Yeah, a couple of thoughts came to me while reading your book. One of them was individual action. A lot of people have this very quick reaction from to, well, individual action doesn't add up. And I started thinking about, I, I presume you also have this challenge of how do we get people off of that? Because 
one of the things I thought was individual action. How about just acting at all? Right. And not just going to protest, but it starts with innovative. Yeah, no, it starts with personal action, right? Uh, so yeah. I think they're right in the sense that it's not enough, but it does start there. And it starts, uh, the sustainability transformation is a hugely personal thing. So if you want to be part of that, you, you do have to start with yourself. I do agree also that you can't stop at recycling. You know what I mean? Like, th- th- it's true that that will not be enough. <laughs> But uh, it starts there. I recycle. But then you also try after that to make some more systemic changes. And also to realize that it's, it's not deprivation. It's not sacrifice. It's like, I, I feel like when people say that, oh, you disconnect from the grid, that's, that's so noble or uh, that's so extreme. And to me, it feels like saying to a parent, like, oh, you change your kid's diapers. That's so extreme. I can't believe how much effort you put into that. I'm like, it's to me, I'm, I'm not a father, so I'm speaking out of not knowing here, but I think that when you change the diaper, it's kind of, I think people get that that's part of an integral part of seeing the child's, I don't know, get the diploma, walk down the aisle and get married or something like that. You don't get one without the other. And Right. And, then, and that's, that's such a, well, and of course, I am a parent and I talk about that and I use that too, where I'm like, I, I think, so thank you for that segue. Um, because um, this idea that, you know, we would be less happy if we would um, give, if we would consciously limit our material consumption, right? If we, if we're high earners, would be paying more taxes, that that would be taking away something from us. I think it's worth reflecting a bit more on that. And if that's, if that assumption is really true, because a lot of social studies show it is not. We feel better when we see when we are connected, and it is easier to connect with other people when people around us, when our communities do good, uh, are doing well, too. And that's currently not happening, right? This income inequality in the U.S., for example, um, it, it's staring at our social fabric. I'm hardly the first one to say that. And you can you can see that in many ways it's starting to um, hinder our 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 democracy because we're we're not having discussions anymore. It's it's hard to do that. It's very polarized, and it's it breeds grounds for uh, populists to come in, right? So um, it's and that again then makes it harder to take actions like like to combat climate change that are actually fairly uh, broadly supported in the population. So again, there's a lot of inf- uh, influences and, and variables that interact with one another, right? But I think it's very important to remember, and that's of course what I do in the book as well. And again, one of the things that I could do in the book compared to the journal article, um, talk about purpose, because we are very purpose-seeking animals. We need a purpose. It doesn't, like you say, the diaper by itself is not fun, Okay. It's not a joyous activity. It's not like things we inherently like, like uh, eating candy or sex. That's typically we do that just for the fun of it. But uh, diaper is no such thing. But because there's a purpose behind it, like you described, it becomes fine. It is. It's just part of the ritual of, um, in this case, I think, um, uh, honoring your child by, to put it a bit dramatically, but you're you're nurturing life there. Right. And that's so fulfilling for human beings. And I think that's a very important thing. 
And and I, I also think that's part of what this is. When you, at some point, we have to decide, do we love life more than growth? And I think we do. You're making me think of, I'm always trying to find how to present something. So one of the other ones is um, when, this is something friends of mine are, are helping me understand because I can't, when, for people to know that there's plastic pollution in the world, that, you know, the Pacific garbage, all the garbage patches in the oceans and so forth. And for them to buy a cup of coffee, be handed a plastic cup. And to me, it's clear that I'm, by paying for it, I'm contributing to this. I'm helping drive the system that creates this plastic pollution. And what people are communicating to me is that I don't know how to put this, except that um, is if there's a part of the brain that is like involved with buying this cup of coffee, and there's another part of the brain that there's plastic pollution in the world. What I'm getting is that people, those parts of the brain are in no contact with each other for many people. They just, they can, they can buy the cup of coffee. And to my eyes, they're helping drive a system. And to their eyes, it has nothing to do with it. And if I tell them that they're contributing to, if I naively and just bluntly say, you know, you're helping drive the system that is polluting the world with plastic, they'll say, why are you making me feel guilty? That doesn't change anything. I can't do anything about it. But what I want to be able to communicate is that when we are connected by these things, when my actions influence other people and I take responsibility for these things, well, whether I take responsibility or not, just to be aware of that connection, is that's glorious. That's part of what it means to be human. I, I mean, I, th I think we value connecting with others, human to human, even if mediated through the environment, and even if it's not directly in space and time, that that connection to other humans is something we want more of, not less of. And the guilt, I'm not saying, I haven't found the right way to say it where someone says, thank you for making that connection for me. But I'm not trying to promote guilt. I'm not trying to promote um, just giving people facts and numbers. I'm trying to share that this, this connection between humans is, how do I put it? What emotions is it drawn? It's, it's a connection, a connectedness, a oneness that I think spirituality is all about and something that we seek yeah but people it's really hard when they just look i just want to buy a cup of coffee it's not my problem it's not i, I, I didn't make this system someone else should fix it well i think that's a very important um factor to to identify there is the sense of powerlessness and that is i think what a lot of people are feeling they're feeling, feeling powerless in the system and they don't like it, but they also don't know how to change it. And so even the most casual pleasures, like buying a cup of coffee, are tainted by this existential anxiety in the background. And that's a lot to deal with psychologically. So it's, I think in that sense, it's understandable that many people um, I, I just kind of try to shut that out. I don't think there is a complete disconnect. I think it's somewhere in the background. But I do think they don't want to be conscious of it on an everyday basis because it's it's uh, it's depressing. And this is, by the way, what you see in statistics. You see, especially the younger generation, who are typically more powerless, right? They have less power to influence the system, but they will be more impacted by things like climate change. They their 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 depression levels are quite high, and and that's I I think it's it's completely understandable. So I think it's important to 
to realize that and then um, understand that making people feel guilty, I'm not saying you do that, right? Um, it will, it's just not going to be helpful. So you, you always want to point out the, the things that they can do if they want to. What I typically do is say what I do without telling them what to do. So I will tell them, you know, I, I, I used to do that too, but I decided to go here and do this for these and these reasons. And it's up to them if they want to take it. Because the truth is, they are right that in this system, um, it's, it's impossible to have your needs met without causing some harm. That's why it's so frustrating for everybody. And I'm not saying it's a good thing to then just unplug, but it is also a predictable outcome that some people in a system that is um, servicing people's needs um, to such a small extent, given the enormous uh, in and outputs we put into it, um, I would say um, it's, 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 a, it's understandable that, a, that some people will choose to unplug. I want to distinguish, and, and I want to see if you agree with me, that when you described younger people as more helpless, I would agree that they may feel more helpless, but I think that if they, I think there's the opportunity to take leadership roles, even for young people, or maybe especially for young people, that they may feel helpless, but that doesn't mean that they are as helpless as they feel, nor that, that even small things, uh, things that they might not think make a difference. I think all the great social movements in history, if you look at their beginnings, were beginning, they began with a lot of people doing things that people around them would have said, this is, there's no point in this. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there are, right. A prime example, a widely known example, I should say, is uh, Greta Thunberg. She was alone in her strike and then it started a global movement. And there, there are many more very young activists as young as 18, just doing all these things. Um, raising awareness in all, in all regions of the world. So they are doing that. Um, I think they are way more aware than the older generations to some extent. Um, but it again, it's not surprising that not everybody has that tenacity. Not everybody has Greta Thunberg's tenacity. Not everybody has your tenacity, where you're going to live off the grid for six months, right? It's, um, it's laudable and it's doable. Um, but it's also um, predictable that not everybody will do that. Yeah, I want to distinguish that what's challenging about it, there are some minor challenges of how to adjust. The bigger challenge is facing society. It's going against the, it's going against the stream that's hard. It's like all the people that say, oh, what you do, uh, all, all the stuff that they say is, that's a much harder thing to deal with than actually just switching from watching videos to reading books. Mm. And also... When I think of past social movements, I, some things that come to mind would be like the voting rights in the, in the United States, the voting rights acts and, and civil rights acts of, of the early 60s. They couldn't have happened without the bus boycotts 10, almost 10 years before. And Rosa mm -hmm. Parks couldn't have done what she did without people before her doing things. And uh, women getting the rights to vote, you know, some woman... I, I've looked this up and I don't think we know the name of the first woman in the West to wear pants. And I think of the scorn and ridicule she almost must have mm. faced because there were mm. later ones who did. And she and they are among the most influential people in all of history. 
I mean, yeah. I don't know any women who, I mean, I, I guess I know a few women who don't wear pants uh, for various religious reasons, but there, I mean, billions of women, st- women do and billions of men are like, fine. And that's a, on the one hand, it's, it's uh, they had to face the scorn and ridicule. On the other hand, it wasn't that much to do in the sense of like, it didn't take a lot of resources. It was available to anyone. And th- I think the opportunity, sometimes I think I describe me unplugging my apartment from the electric grid. Originally, the goal was one month. I didn't think I could make it past two days. Today begins my sixth month. And I think of it as my Kitty Hawk moment that when I unplugged, I was on the one hand thinking I'm just doing something for myself, living by my values, although also realizing I'm doing a, a leadership exercise. It's very, I think it's impossible to lead someone else to do something, to live by values that I'm living the opposite of. But now I call it my Kitty Hawk moment. And I think now airplanes pollute a lot, but if we just look at the engineering aspect of, of the Wright brothers' first flight, if anyone looked at them and said, okay, so you got something to fly, self-powered, controlled, but we need a whole, I mean, you can't make a 747, you can't make a, a whole network of airports all around the world, so what's the point? But we all know what happened, and, and you know, there are airports all over the world, and we, do, we have made 747s. And this process of continual improvement following, followed by, uh, following a mindset shift is, I guess we always underestimate what we can do in a year and overestimate what we can do in a day. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's very true. I do think that, so I completely agree with everything you just said. And I think that's why I also address the mindset shift that is so necessary in the book, right? Because again, technological innovation is going to be absolutely crucial in the sustainability transformation but it needs to be it's a tool technology is just a tool and so it needs to be aimed at the correct goal so if our goal is still going to be growth ultimately technology will will serve mostly that purpose and if during that journey to get to that growth goal um we have increased efficiencies and uh, some some green uh, byproducts that bring down our footprints a little bit, that's fine. But it w- I don't think it will be enough. I don't think it will be nearly enough. While if we redirect technology towards innovating, towards meeting human needs within planetary boundaries, then, yes, I agree. We can absolutely get there. And we will be amazed what we can do in just a year. How did that play out in, in Schneider? Because I imagine this, it's probably a lot of technology there and a lot of technological development. And if you simply make things more efficient, well, people will use that efficiency to grow if their goal is growth. Right. How does it play out in your job or in, in that culture? Yeah. I mean, so Schneider Electric started out as a manufacturer of, if I'm not mistaken, um, of uh, cannonballs. So it was very different from what they're doing now. So it just goes to show over what you can do over time, right? If you just have a uh, an innovation innovation mindset. So I, I think Snyder is like any other company. You still have to work within the current system that's primed as growth. So there's a lot of uh, tension there, right? You know that the system is changing, that it's going to change. But it's still right now, you also have to deliver um, on that growth imperative. And I, th- I think uh, it's the same that you see in every other company. And so 
it's um and on a personal level it's the same thing right uh, you and i want to are, are working towards the transformation but we're still part of a larger um capitalist system and so there's there's always a little bit of tension there i think there's no way around it and i think maturity and understanding systems is just getting comfortable with that tension for now does that make sense yeah, I was also hoping to get some really clear examples of like, I'm working with this guy who's a pretty high level executive at one of the major global oil companies. And I've been working with him long enough that he's made the mindset shift. Mm-hmm. I mean, he recognizes he's at a company that their business is extracting fossil fuels from the ground and selling them. And, and they want the largest share, even if the market is decreasing, they want the largest share. But he personally has, I mean, I've done the Spodek method with him and and he's, I can see it over the months of him enjoying and seeing how it improves his relationships with his family and time spent with family and the depth of, of, of activities with his family that he used to think, well, I have to fly. I can't do other ways because it takes too long. And now he's like, Oh, if I, if I involve my family, we spend more time together on the train and people around him, at this company through no direct, I'm not in touch with them directly. And he's not using specific techniques. He's just simply sharing how things are going. And he's starting to see the change happening from within this place that I, so I really like this. I, I mean, I, I certainly value uh, extinction rebellion and 350.org and organizations like that protesting that's leading to a lot of companies like his circling the wagons and protecting themselves. But if you get the mindset shift of someone on the inside, and the mindset shift is, is to enjoy life more, to enjoy time with family more, to, uh, to feel, to see that there's a route out of feeling helplessness, powerlessness, hopelessness, to action leading to, based on a vision that he can tell is possible. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great example. Yeah. How, how, but also again, right. How all the, how deeply personal working on this on a real shift is and also how it intersects with all other kinds of things like the social impacts i i was i talked to uh, someone who has a um, who's leading the us operations of, uh, of we don't have time it's a broadcast on uh, mostly on climate change and other environmental issues and um and i said i have to tell you sweta you are you've been so successful like did you are reaching millions of people with this because they have people tune in online by the millions like i don't don't, it's very hard actually to reach people and to keep to actually actively tune in to deals about climate change and they do a great job they have a a different kind of bringing it and it's sort of entertaining while packed with information but still i said i don't know how you do it and she said uh yeah uh i think part of it is because we have no competition which is interesting, right? In the media. So I was like, I'm not sure that's true. And and then she continued and she said, because, uh, you know, everybody who does the same thing, we just work with them. And that's the kind of mindset, right? If you are if you are guided not by market domination, but by the purpose of reaching people by climate change, all the other people that are doing it are not your competitors, they're allies. You work a lot with Club of Rome and I, they seem to me secretive or hard to reach. And I had a question here, and I'm going to ask this in the sense of 
in my mind, acting on sustainability is connecting with other people. Are you seeing personal action on their part? What makes you say that they're secretive? I don't, I can't say I have that experience. Yeah, that's what it's, it's just this feeling because I don't know. Um, uh, the name seems kind of funny and it, I, I've never, I, I saw a TEDx talk by one, which I think you mentioned. Um, but other than that, it's, I don't, oh, and I, and I had this whole thing of this new, um, the, the post world three model. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Earth for all. It, it didn't feel accessible to me. It felt like um, academic and I, like, I want to connect. I was like, Oh, I can't wait to see this. And then I see it and, and it doesn't feel like something I can act on. It doesn't feel like something. I don't feel like there's people behind it acting on it so much as pontificating. Oh, okay. So they are a group of thinkers. They're, they're club, the club of Rome is a, is a group of only 100. That's their maximum uh, politicians, uh, thinkers, um, scientists around the world. So they're, in that sense, they're relatively small, given their domain. Um, and they, they brought out this, this uh, Earth for All uh, model and book that describes five uh, leverage points in the global system. So they used a, um, a new systems model of the world to identify, okay, if we need to make these changes and we need to make them quickly, how do we do that today? And, and they identified five points where if you work there, in the system, you will amplify changes in other areas too. And three of those five are actually social. So one of them was the income inequality, right? That I just mentioned, that, that needs to be drastically reduced. Uh, and then there's the women empowerment. We're, to put it very simplistically, we're basically underutilizing half the population, so we can't afford that. Um, and then uh, the third one is a drastic a reduction of poverty so basically in, in inequalities between countries right we the, the, we have as the, as the richer nations the us uh, they need to be uh, way more active in, in in new growth models for uh, new economies so and what, what i mean with new growth models is for them um because the lower income countries they still need to grow, but they do it in a, need to do it in a way that avoids the mistakes of that we've seen, for example, in the West. So the accompanying uh, increasing footprints, which is not necessary, so they can leapfrog with new technologies. And then the other two, the environmental ones, are uh, regenerative agriculture and, of course, the energy transition. And they are all very interconnected. So the energy transition, for example, it, it will not happen if we don't reduce inequalities because people will resist the change. It needs to be an inclusive change, right? So um, uh, that's on a webpage, uh, Earth for All. And I think the, the entire model that they used is there too, the scenarios and all the data. You can play with it yourself. And then, of course, you can buy the book, which is on, on Amazon and all those things. So I'm not, yeah, I, I'm not sure what you mean with not accessible. They they put that book out. Um, I think it's very accessibly written. There's the model that you can play with. So I'm not, yeah, I, I, I haven't noticed that, but maybe you can tell me a bit more about what you thought was not accessible about the website. Well, I guess they're not accessible. It comes to mind that I've not tried to contact them and, and try to get any of them on my podcast. Although I really would like to get Dennis on the podcast. I love listening to him speak and seeing him, seeing videos and so forth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Dennis is a, is a, 
maybe just for your listeners, that's, that's a, one of the authors of the original The Limits to Growth book, right? He is not a member of the Club of Rome, uh, by the way, but uh, yes, of course, that he's a, I, I love hearing him speak too. I guess I've never tried to contact someone there to bring them on the podcast. Uh, I've never tried to, it hasn't occurred to me to try. So I guess I should just try. If you know anyone there who likes to do podcasts, I'd love to invite them to be on. And separate from accessibility, I, and I guess that's maybe my read of things. And, and maybe th- then there's separately, mm-hmm. when I come across Earth for All, I'm looking also for some sort of inspiration, like we're doing this. We ourselves are changing. We're doing something different than we were before, but it feels like it's more like um, Ivory Tower speak. Mm. Mm. Like how, I mean, okay, so we want to uh, lessen inequality. How? I mean, what, like, what, what's the actionable? I, I feel like they're like, here's some great ideas. Why isn't everyone doing them? It's not exactly the same as putting the bell on the cat from the story about the mice. Mm. It's not there's <laughs> a danger, but there's like, if it's so great, how come you're not doing it? If you're doing it, how come I don't know about it? Yeah, so uh, that's always the problem with policy recommendations. I'll give you that. Um, I, I do think there, again, it is, I think it, it is on the website and it's certainly in the book where they're like, okay, so um, with all of each of these five leverage points, they were like, this is the problem. And these are the solutions. They're numbered in there. Um, they are by large policy recommendations. So for example, uh, the top 10% should never take more than 40% of generated income. Uh, that's a good point. How that's I think that makes a lot of sense. They they're not even the first ones to, to come up with that. By the way, uh, that you see that in literature. That's typically what helps. It doesn't need to be communism where everybody has the exact same income, but you do need to curb the, the enormously skewed distribution that we're seeing, for example, right now in the U.S. Uh, how do you get that done? That's uh, that's fair because then you have to elect the right politicians to do that, right? Um, but that's why the book is out, so that politicians can read it and go, okay, that's a good policy recommendation, and that voters can read it and go, okay, so we want to elect people that do that. Um, is that harder in, a, in this environment? Yes, because we're very polarized and not even everybody reads books, etc. So there is, that's absolutely true. Um, so by in that sense, I think just by themselves, the Club of Rome cannot do this. Uh, I, I, I think it would be a bit unfair to ask that of them. And um, that's why they also brought out that book to also enable other people to go, this is, yeah, that makes sense to me. This is what we want to do. To me, I, I'm going to be blunt here, that to me, mm. to suggest things like that, well, there's been no shortage of that in the past. And the people who are the most rich aren't doing it because they think that they're going to make others poor. They think that by making themselves rich, that is how you, if, if nothing else, motivate other people to solve problems that will make them rich, which will solve these problems. I mean, Bill Gates is all, actually, something I've noticed, everyone who talks about sustainability from no matter what direction, they, one of their lead things is always, we want to help the poor the most, and we want to help mm. the poor nations the most. Mm. And I think a lot of them believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in principle, it's something you could measure to find out. But if someone believes that getting rich helps, that they themselves getting rich helps the poor, then you can see, then what the Club of Rome writes sounds tone deaf to them. And they're just not going to listen. What's to say, we, here's a policy, but there's a million policies. We don't need more policies. 
Mm. And to say, well, maybe politicians will look at it. A politician looking at that and looking at people are flying around and buying cars. And, and when uh, a situation happens in Europe that people are f- trying to figure out what they're going to do about heating over the winter, no one says, well, people have lived here for five or 10,000 years and we've only been burning fossil fuels in the past couple hundred. Is there something we can learn from the past? No, they fly off to Qatar and, and figure out how to get more fossil fuels. And it, in, in fact, the people, so I'm getting carried away, but <laughs> people aren't, um, how to, part of why I'm acting the way that I'm acting is so that I can share from experience how it, like, among other things, it, it will improve your own life. And to me, I'm, I'm very inspired by the site. Do you know the Low Tech Magazine? It's, um, it's, it's a small site, it's a, but it's a guy who believes in technology, loves technology, but it's generally low tech is, is what technologies endure. They tend to be technologies from a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. And he's doing it. He's living it. He's, and he's sharing a joy that comes from it. That's just one method that I don't see coming from people who are saying, here are these systemic, I, the systemic view is very important. And they'll say, we need to change certain things, but I don't see them changing themselves. And I don't see them addressing people who disagree to influence them to, if someone believes otherwise, okay, I believe this, you believe that now there's an impasse, Mm -hmm. but how do you, how do you actually change the mind and behavior or be open to maybe I'm wrong. I'm the one who's wrong. I have to listen as well and and listen with humility. Yeah. That's why. So I, I, I do recognize that problem. And that's why in my book, I talked about uh, more about the needs and wants of human beings and I made a distinction between that because wants are are actually quite different from needs and one of the key things about needs is that they're universal and so that is what human beings can connect around and that's why in uh, chapter 7 it's one of the things I put in there because I I, I agree with you that it needs to uh, <laughs> It has to connect to our needs for us to re- before we start resonating with it. Uh, policy recommendations uh, can follow maybe later, but first you need to make a connection, right? And we all have the same needs, and that's what we can come. That's what we can connect around, uh, and so that's why I put that very much in there. I, I used the work of Maslow of the pyramid. Um, I, I argue for a different uh, definition entirely of economics, that where economics centers on people trying to have their needs met. And instead of some definitions, there are many definitions for economics, but uh, some definitions, several of them talk about um, the methods of or the, the, the dynamics of people trying to fulfill their unlimited wants. And I think we should break with that. I don't think that's what economics in the 21st century should be about. I think it should be about um, the behavior that arises from people trying to have their needs met. And on the lower pyramid of Maslow, those can be met with uh, more material intense things, uh, which is why, again, we need to have some more growth in low-income countries. Once those needs are met, because that's another key difference between wants and needs, right? Once your needs are met, you're fine, you're good, and you move up towards higher levels of the Maslow pyramid. 
on these higher levels, our needs are way more social. So that's where we're starting to look into um, needs for connection and intimacy and a feeling of purpose that you're contributing to your community, all those kind of things. And so um, those are very, those can be easily met without much material stuff, right? So that's, that's a great solution that will make us happier um, and it will lower our footprint. So um, I do agree with you that that's probably if you want to see the change in, um, you know, in, in, in the broader population. So the broad, the, probably the majority of people who aren't that interested in policy recommendations, um, that's where you want to want to start by addressing their needs and talking about them and connecting people around their needs. Now, we're, I would love to keep talking forever with you, especially, I mean, <laughs> we're barely scratching the surface, but I know we're running right. out of time. I was about to read to you your closing paragraph of the book, and then it occurred to me, you'd probably read it in your voice better. I don't know if you have it handy, or I could copy and paste it into your into the chat, but I'm, I'd love for people to hear it and for you to comment on it if you're, if you're willing. Oh, wow. That's a... Uh... I, I, yeah, that's a that's a great idea. You're you're kind of springing that on me, but I I'm, I'm well, totally I, willing to do that because I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I just yeah, put yeah. it in the chat if if you don't have it handy. And oh yeah, I, no no worries, I can pull it up from my manuscript. I you might, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go. I don't know whether humanity will make the necessary radical improvements to avoid collapse. There are many signs in both directions a few of which I have mentioned in this book. But I do know that we can. We still have time, even though that is running out. We have the capabilities, including in technology and finance, which will be crucially helpful once we direct them to solve the right problems. Most importantly, we have the will. Because striving for balance and caring for life is in our nature. We can be thrown off that natural state through force justified by stories of qualifying hierarchies like violence, shaming, or chemical manipulation, and in a society with expansionary growth as its pursuit, we inevitably have been. But the longing to connect remains. So if you take only one thing away from this book, let it be this. You are more and better than what you have been told. And I wonder if you could... If you could expound on that. And, and before you do, I want to comment for something, someone who hasn't read the book is, I didn't realize this when I was reading before, but almost every sentence captures something that were many paragraphs or even a whole chapter before. So this is much more um, meaningful mm. after having read the book than right. I think people will get. So I recommend yeah. people read it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's the concluding paragraph. So it's, yes, absolutely. It summarizes everything I touched upon. Because for example, we didn't talk about the the chemical manipulation right how how things are primed to work on certain of our natural responses in terms of uh, what hormones get released etc that's we didn't even talk about that um but yes uh, and so the book is called uh five insights for avoiding global collapse it is open access on mdpi uh, so anybody can google it for uh, if you look at gaia Hangerton and you will find it it's free for download that's because um, I, yeah, I agree with you, Joshua. It's uh, we need to, and I'll put the links in the show notes so people don't oh, have to start looking too much. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, um, because it is. I think it is. This book was written to 
to reach those masses that are very, I think a lot of people are very curious about this and they do have a sense of how things need to be different, but they need more, I would say, more personal. I think that's what we are getting on. That's what you're getting at, right? Uh, policy recommendations. Okay. Yeah. Most of us are not policy makers. And people want more personal tools to get to work. And hopefully this book will provide some. Yeah, Guy Harrington, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.